Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends, once again, and we welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, which is heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us. I'm so delighted to have um, author Jamie Lynn Smith with us today because we're going to be talking about her latest collection of short stories, and these are the kind of short stories that are beautiful in their construction and composition, but they also take the reader inside the lives of characters who feel like real people. Uh, These are people that are flawed. These are characters that are struggling. These are characters who have had failures and failings. And they're also kind of grappling with a lot of questions about themselves and about life and about what's to come in their future. And the title of the collection uh, that we're going to be discussing today on the program is called Township. And our guest is author Jamie Lynn Smith, and she joins us today. She is a writer, editor, and teacher. Her work has appeared in The Pinch, Mississippi Review, Kenyon Review, American Literary Review, and Bayou. She is a 2020 recipient of the Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award, and this collection of stories, Township, takes place in a fictional town, in a fictional county, in Appalachian, Ohio. So, Jamie, I am so glad to have you on the program with us today. Welcome to the program. Welcome to Now Appalachia. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and I can't wait to talk about uh, your collection of stories, but I wanted to ask you uh, something. I was doing some research on all of the different connections involved in uh, putting this collection together, and one of the themes I noticed that emerged from your book is that Kenyon College factors a lot into the composition of your stories. And when I would talk to your publisher and told them that we were getting ready to do this interview pretty Mm -hmm. soon, they said, and I was asking them about the Kenyon College connections. They said, oh yes, well, you know, even our cover designer that did the, that did the front cover of the book uh, went to Kenyon College and she kind of knows Jamie. And so uh, in doing some research on you, I know that Kenyon College factors in significantly to not just this collection of stories, but your career as a writer. Can you talk a little bit about Kenyon College and why that place uh, had such a significant impact on you? Well, I have to tell you, you've asked me, like, this is a great question. It's now my favorite question. Um, <laughs> because I, I really, so when I was, um, I went to Kenyon, I was um, really, really fortunate because I, um, the college cost more than my parents made put together and, and they gave me a full, pretty much a full scholarship um, when I was just a little 18 year old, 18 year old girl. And um, in a lot of ways, Gambier has been where Kenyon is located, has been my home. Um, and so the part of the county where I grew up, um, where I feel most comfortable, where I feel happiest and most welcome. And I think that a lot of that um, has to do with kind of like, you know, the natural coming of age there, right? Um, And also too, for those, for people who go to a small school, I think that that a lot of the time you have the experience of um, sort of being in a, in a, in a really tight, um, tight community. And, And the friends that I have, um, as an adult in my life are 
a lot of them are are from um, from my college years, and you know have been with me this whole ride. Um, the other thing that the other connection that I have with the college um, is that, like, you know, of course, I graduated, moved away for many years, lived on the east and west coasts, and I returned home to rural Ohio. Um, and I wound up taking a job um, here locally that allowed me to collaborate quite a bit with with the school and um, many jobs since then and an MFA in creative writing from Ohio State, which I also want to acknowledge their role in this book. Um, but, you know, even now I, I work for a public library and we collaborate very often with the college. And um, one of the coolest things that happened in terms of my writing is that really the first story that I ever wrote that I was happy with is the first story in this collection. And it's the first fiction piece I ever had published. It's called Nature Preserve. And so it starts off the collection and it was published in the Kenyon Review. Um, my advisor at Ohio State really liked it. She said, I think I'm gonna, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna send it to the editor of the Kenyon Review. Um, she was like, is that all right? And I was like, shoot, hell yeah, that's great. Like I, I, went, to, I went to college there. It'd be great to have this published at such a great magazine and at my alma mater. And she said, well, do you know David? And I was like, no, I've never met him. You know, I never took a class with him when I was an undergrad. Um, and, and David Lynn picked it up and published it. Um, Two years later, he um, hired me on to work with their summer programs. I taught workshops in the writing in the Young Writers Program and studied under him. And uh, I bet you didn't know this was going to be this long an answer, but <laughs> like I still work as a with the review. And um, so, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the college has kind of been a, a home for me here kind of as an expat who, who moved back. And um, the one thing I will clarify is that my cover designer, my, the person who took my author photo is a Kenyan grad, but my cover designer is um, from, she got, she earned her degree at Bluffton University where I taught. And a couple years after, after uh, she graduated, I was working on the book. We needed a cover designer and I, I brought her in immediately. Kara Eccles, um, great, great designer. Um, but yeah, so the, the connections with the college kind of overlap and um, it's located along the river that features prominently, a fictionalized version of which features prominently in the book. So it's, it's geographical, it's kind of spiritual, it's artistic, it's, it's my home. Fantastic. And I know that you mentioned this a moment ago, but I wanted to ask you something more uh, about it, that you spent some time living and working in New York. You spent some time living and working in Los Angeles. Uh, then you moved back to uh, Appalachia, Ohio. Um, I want to ask I you about, about you know, sort of mo moving away uh, and then coming back and then deciding to set a lot of your short stories uh, in this fictional county, this fictional mm -hmm. location uh, in Appalachian, Ohio. W what was it about Appalachian, Ohio that, that drew you back uh, as a writer and made you say, you know what, I want to I set this collection of stories in this place? You know, I didn't, I didn't move back as a writer. Like what happened was I was, uh, I was, I was teaching high school in New York city and um, my beloved grandfather fell ill and went into hospice. And so I, um, there happened to be, I hadn't moved back for lots of reasons. One is that, you know, I was having a good career and enjoyed it, um, but there just weren't any jobs. You know, there were no jobs. Like I, my degree is in theater and my degree is in English. 
and for undergrad. And by then I, you know, I'd gotten my master's from Fordham University in education and was teaching and quite content with it. But I, I also knew that um, I simply could not leave my family. And I think there's a lot of like family um, sort of obligation and things that you just do um, that are, they're very cultural and will be familiar to lots of other, um, to lots of other people, um, Appalachian or not, but, you know, we take care of our, our families and we take care of each other. And so, um, I applied for this job. It was the only thing listed in the whole newspaper locally that wasn't like driving a truck or working at a chicken farm, um, neither of which I'm qualified to do. And I got it. And so I, I moved back for that job. After I moved back, I realized I had a lot of stories to tell. And um, I'd been writing my whole life, but I was kind of like a failed playwright and I don't know, sort of okay, mediocre songwriter. Like, um, and I just, struggled to find like, what's my medium, you know? So when I, I knew that I needed time and I knew that I needed space to write, but I didn't, I didn't quite, the only way I could figure to do it um, was I started looking at graduate school. And initially I, I thought I'd get my PhD, but I found out that was a lousy way to try to, to write a novel. And I had this idea in my mind that I would write a novel about my family's experiences in the Americas. Um, much of which is in um, Southwestern, would take place in Southwestern Virginia. Um, and so I started working on that, applied to graduate school, got in. And when I got to graduate school, I realized that I had no business trying to write a novel when I couldn't even write a decent short story. Um, the novel was a mess. It wasn't coming together. And I knew that if I was going to write something that big, I'd have to figure out how to make a smaller kind of like test model of it work first. So in my graduate school workshops for the MFA program at Ohio State, I bring in these terribly, terribly messy chapters and kind of like ill-formed ideas. And then after class, you know, we'd all talk, we'd go for coffee or we'd go for a drink and we'd, you know, um, talk about class and what we were working on. And I'd tell stories about what was going on in the township where I lived and my friends were like, why are we reading this crap? You should write about this instead. <laughs> you know, and it was, this is so much more interesting to them. And so it was, it was, I really appreciated like the, the people that nudged me in that direction to write about the way that I was trying to figure out how do I fit in here, right? What is my story going to be here? Is, what is my place here? Is there a place? Um, it's true. When you leave home, you can't come back you do not come back the same. And, um, and I'm glad for that because it gave me a lot of opportunities to experience things I might not have had access to, to here. It gave me a lot of opportunities to meet with, meet and work with people I never would have had a chance to, to know if I had stayed in rural Ohio my whole life. And at the same time, it also made it very challenging to figure out how to fit in where I had grown up where people had specific ideas about who my family was or who I was, or more importantly, who I ought to be and what the world ought to be like. And, and so I, I wanted to um, write stories kind of like that told the truth and oh, there's no kind of about it. I wanted to write stories that told the truth about characters that were very vivid and real and about people's lived experiences and problems. Um, and the things that were really happening in rural America, because I did not see good representation 
or really even accurate, at all accurate representation from people outside who were writing about us. So to me, it was just a matter of telling stories witnessed and sometimes lived and experienced from the inside. Um, and this is one experience, right? Like this is not an autobiography by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it's, uh, I take an inch of truth and make a yard of fiction. Um, but the problems are real and the questions are real. And so the stories became my um, thesis at Ohio State University. And when I graduated, um, my friend from the, the editor of the Kenyon Review at the time, David Lynn, and my mentor, Aaron McGraw, who lives in Tennessee, um, sent me to look for an agent. And when I got my agent, we started working on the book and spent a year working on it, started sending it out, didn't go. Continued to do that until finally Cornerstone picked it up. And uh, it's, it's a far better book than it was when I left, but I had to grow along with it. So there, it's not, to answer your question, it's not that there was ever an intent. I did not sit down and say like, I'm gonna write 10 short, 10 short stories about you know a fictionalized version of Knox County, Ohio. But I was working through my decision to move back and what kind of life I wanted to make for myself here. And so some of the struggles that are in the book are struggles that, um, like I said, either I experienced or people around me experienced. And so that's really where um, that impulse came from Very and where good. the idea came from. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate you taking the time to share that with us because that really uh, illuminates a lot and I think connects strongly uh, to the stories that we see in this collection. And, and one of the things I loved about this collection of stories is that uh, there were moments I laughed. There were moments that I, I sort of kind of felt uncomfortable. There were moments where I, I thought long and hard about the characters and, and circumstances that they were in. Um, and I feel like that there were, um, you know, th there are real people involved in these stories, as we talked about, um, that are going through so many things and, and are trying to, uh, you know, uh, find their happiness, find their truth, find their redemption. And I mm -hmm. wanted to just read a, a small passage um, from one of your stories that I really loved, and it's towards the back of the collection called Give Me Shelter. And uh, I just wanted to read this because I think it, it, it illuminates so much of, of what your characters experience uh, in this community. And um, we're getting this uh, from, we're, there's a few characters here in this passage. It's on the bottom of page 165 and uh, talking about Rochelle and Deborah. And uh, there's just a really poignant comment that you make uh, in this description that I wanted to ask you about. And you write that Rochelle, the other shelter resident, had a falling out with Deborah that very morning because Deborah refused to petition the judge to drop charges against Rochelle's still at large boyfriend. Rochelle had ranted, threatened, and cajoled, insisting that Deborah didn't understand. Rochelle said that sometimes violence was the answer, that it was just as important as love, and that all Deborah's social workers' fancy words couldn't fix everything. And that's why there was fighting and fucking. For, for, forgive me for the pejorative there uh, on the end. But I, I felt like when I was looking for a passage that, that kind of summarized so much of what your characters go through and experience, uh, it is those things. It's, it's the absence of love. It's looking for love in the wrong places. It's the conflict that comes when people uh, don't see eye to eye. And, and I think that all of these things are, are, are so Appalachian in, in a lot of ways. 
Um, and it connects to small communities where everyone knows everybody and everybody knows mm-hmm. that everybody has a past and everybody's past is not uh, pristine and, and sort of st- studded with diamonds, so to speak. Can, can you talk about that story and about those characters? Because I really felt like that whole paragraph there sort of encapsulate, encapsulated for me uh, everything that we see kind of play out in different stories in different ways. What's going on in that story? And, and can you talk about working some of those themes into that story and how some of those ideas carry off into your other stories? You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up Gimme Shelter because this is um, the one story. I think I drafted it in graduate school, but I don't think it was in my thesis and I never workshopped it. Um, and uh It's interesting because, so the first job I had when I moved back, I actually was not working with clients. So, um, but I was working at the local domestic violence shelter, New Directions in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And um, I, my job was to uh, do prevention programming work and um, kind of place, you know, pro-social programs in schools, but we all worked in the shelter. And and I also had volunteered there for a long time my, my great aunt helped found it. Um, it was a very important place for my family. Um, and I also had family members move through it as clients. And, um, for those of us, uh, for women and, um, many people actually, um, because of course, you know, domestic violence is also no respecter of persons, right? Um, these kinds of experiences are very close and we see them, we hear about them, we live them. Um, and so it was important to me um, that there be, uh, I just couldn't not write about it. You know, like being in that world was part of my being back here um, and, and very much a part of a really important and meaningful part of my career. You know, so I, and I thought like how rarely we see um, the sort of like tension between like what the textbook says about how to deal with a problem like, like, like Rochelle's right. And the real life um, feelings and, and experiences of a woman in Rochelle's shoes, you know? So, um, so when I wrote, give me shelter, I was thinking about no one particular person but about a lot of it. And, and the quote that you mentioned, um, I think in a lot of ways you have really, um, you have really found the heart of the book um, because it's, I've always joked that, you know, Appalachians don't call the law, social workers or anthropologists on our own people. <laughs> and like, it's nothing against law, social workers or anthropologists, but, but a lot of the, the culture in my experience has been, um, moving outside of those systems and other more like community um, based means of support to put it delicately, right? Like you may not go to the shelter, you get your, your cousins to go over and have a talk with someone. Um, you may not press, press any charges, but you um, make it clear that like you get the matter resolved in some way. Um, there's uh, a lot of aunties and grandmas and mamas and papas who deserve a master's in social work for the good that they do, you know, um, counseling in our communities. And I, I'm not trying to, to gloss this over. There are also, by the same token, um, 
a lot of people entrenched in traditions that continue these oppressions that continue to plague people all over the country. And so um, I, I wanted to write about the poll I feel, you know, like, because I know my um, professional textbook response, right, or is that, um, that violence is never the answer and that violence must be avoided at all costs. And um, there are also times that I um, have not chosen that path, right? And the, or it has not been a, a, a viable option um, and have seen the ways that that plays out. And whatever choice these characters make, there are gonna be consequences for that. You know, and Rochelle sees those consequences very differently than Deborah does. You know, Jamie Lynn Smith um, is our guest here on Now Appalachia. We're speaking with her today about her collection of short stories. It's a fantastic new collection. It's called Township, and we'll come back to the stories uh, in just a second. But uh, Jamie, I wanted to ask you a, a couple questions just about uh, your writing process and your career. Uh, I understand that you have a writing quote from uh, Louise Erdrich. I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Uh, this sort of guides you and is one of your favorite writing quotes. Um, and that you refer to it often. Uh, can you share that quote with us and, and why that quote uh, as a writer and a storyteller inspires you so much? You know, Louise Erdrich is one of my literary hero heroes. She's so fantastic. Um, and if you have not read Love Medicine or Tracks or The Beat Queen or her more recent work, oh my goodness, I should know this off the top of my head, but now I'm like, a deer in the spotlight here. I just finished reading um, The Sentence. Absolutely um, wonderful novels and uh, just a, a, a treasure of, um, of storytelling. Um, but Louise Erdrich's quote that's on my wall, I'm actually looking at it right now, says, here I am where I ought to be. A writer must have a place where she feels this, a place to love and be irritated with. And again, that tension is what I think drives a lot of the stories in the novel, I, or sorry, in the collection. I never wanted them to be mean to anybody, you know, as angry as I am about certain things that I see, um, and definitely not happy with a bunch of my characters and their choices. I, I still had to write them from a place of love. And oftentimes that was very hard to do. So when I'm writing about um, about Knox County, Ohio, and which I've called, you know, South County here in the book. Um, I'm writing it from a place of love and kind of like the scolding that you get, but where they want you to do better. <laughs> You're not just in trouble. There's an expectation that we can do better, you know? And so I, I think that that optimism is something that I hope comes through in, in my work when I write about difficult characters and the difficulties in this particular place. So you mentioned that uh, you have written some some screenplays and done some screenwriting uh, and, and didn't have uh, as much success or felt like you didn't have as much success with that as you did with uh, this collection of stories called Township. Um, I wanted to ask you about the short story genre. What is that? What is it about that genre? Or what is it about writing short stories that connects to you or appeals to you or is something that you enjoy doing and feel comfortable doing? You know, it's interesting. I actually tried to write for the theater more than, more than film. Um, I did have, 
I had a screenplay that was like a finalist in a big contest and that was really cool, but it never went anywhere after that. Um, in fact, I turned it into a short story to use as my writing sample to get to apply to graduate school. And um, so in terms of writing short stories, it was interesting because I did a reading last week and my playwriting professor from college was there. And she said, you know, I, I always talk about Aristotle and Aristotelian theory and how um, it can seem inflexible, but it actually is something that works across space and time as a way of telling stories. It is certainly not the only way, um, but she pointed out, you know, she said that short story structure and dramatic structure actually have far more in common than the structure of long form work like a novel. And um, something about that really hit home with me when, when Wendy McLeod said that, I was really taken with it. And I've been thinking about it ever since. Again, I didn't set out to write short stories, but what I love about them is that if you don't like what you're reading, just go to the next one. You know, like there's, I, I love the way that it lets me change what I'm doing and experiment and try out different forms and um, play around with characters. Uh, for example, Shelley is a character who appears in several stories, but she doesn't have her own story. You know, there's a few of those like that throughout the book. Um, and so it was um, important to me that when I started working on short stories that I get it right. And you've got to get it right in like a few thousand words, you know, um, there isn't time in a short story for you to be boring or to make a real big mistake. And it writing them really taught me how to edit my work. Very good. We're speaking with author Jamie Lynn Smith today on this episode of Now Appalachia. The title of her new short story collection is called Township. And we're going to get back and talk some more about the, those stories uh, as we continue with our discussion today. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Jamie, about probably my favorite story in the collection, which is titled Search, Rescue, and Recovery. And I like this so well because uh, for anyone who is an adult and has dealt with children, either their own children, students, neighborhood kids, whatever it may be, um, you really set up a great dichotomy between that and technology kind of infiltrates some of the schism that's created there, which is certainly something we all can identify with in our sort of 24-7 tech-driven society today. Can you talk to us a little bit about that particular story? What's going on here between the adults and the kids? How the technology is working to mm -hmm. kind of create a little rift between them? Um, talk to us a little bit about that and kind of what's going on in that story, because that was a story that really fascinated me. And I felt like I thought about it long after I finished reading it. You know, it's interesting because it's I've had a number of people talk to me about this story and um, and say and, and echo what you've said. And it, it's not that it's not one of my favorites. I was actually terrified of it because I don't have children. And I, I was worried that I wouldn't come, you know, be able to capture that parent's fear um, and kind of like, again, the schisms that you pointed out and the gaps between the way that, you know, younger folk, the digital natives and, um, and analog natives see the world, right? And so for me, um, the world, what the internet does, right, is it both expands and shrinks the world at the, at the same time. So you have access to all of this information kids do, right? Or any adult who's using it, any user. 
But then it also, if you get too into your social media, it can really shrink your world to where you care so much about what someone says about you on during, you know, on Twitch, or Instagram, whatever your, your, your jam is, right. That, you know, there are, there are kids every day that are harming themselves, that are harming each other <laughs> and, and adults who are getting into it over nonsense, right. That we, if you, um, stakes that could seem very small become disproportionately large. And so I wanted to sort of touch on that a little bit. And I think that there's also a sense sometimes that people who are working in digital um, worlds are not working. And I'm telling you, it's still work, right? Like it's um, whether you're a professional gamer or a designer or, you know, whatever it is, you're a content creator, that is so much work, but we don't necessarily value it the same way we value seeing someone um, you know, like drag a trailer, go through the river and conduct a search for a missing child. You know, we don't necessarily, um, and obviously the pursuits are apples and oranges comparison because one has far more serious um, consequences and implications than another, but they're both still a kind of work. And that devaluation, right? Like, oh, I don't want to do something that gets my hands dirty or oh, this person isn't contributing anything valuable, right, to society, um, isn't doing meaningful work, I think is a real, like, um, source of a lot of the cognitive dissonance between um, people who are comfortable um, in, the, in the virtual world and people who really scorn it and kind of want nothing to do with it, the way that the main character, Kenneth, looks down on his son's um, kind of like burgeoning fame, if you will, as a gamer and his, his YouTube channel and all of that stuff um, is really, you know, is something that we're seeing play out in real time. And so um, having that be a source of friction between the two of them um, was something that took a few drafts for me to get to. I knew that they, did, that they didn't get along, but getting at the source of it um, and finding that took a couple of drafts for me to land on. And then once I hit it, everything else fell into place with the, with the plot of the story. And plot is really where those things begin with me. And I know that in talking with you before we started our interview today, you mentioned that you felt like Homegrown, the story Homegrown, was your most Appalachian or traditional Appalachian story of any story that's in the collection. Why did you feel that way? Or why do you feel that way? Maybe because it's of its focus on family and the importance of bringing someone home to meet your family is a big deal, like no matter what culture you're in, right? That's a universal thing. Um, and like what those expectations are when you have like a very important announcement, like your engagement or your plans to, to do something. And, and that these were a matter of like, you know, you're also bringing together um, two different sometimes more than two different cultures, right? So we have like, this story takes place in, you know, in rural Ohio, um, in the mountains and, um, and Callie has brought home her, who lives in New York now has brought home her boyfriend who is um, uh, from Shanghai, but American. He's also an army veteran. And there's a lot of things that I think like we, um, we don't think about the complexity of our various like identities and worlds and cultures that we move through. And yet we do this all the time, you know, and every family is a culture. And so I felt like with this one in particular, it was really a meeting of two worlds that, that I've 
personally lived and moved through, you know, um, and the way that um, the characters have to really work to understand and love each other as they are. And one of them, Callie, is not doing a great job of that, you know, um, at any point in the story. And failing and trying and failing and trying again is how we negotiate those things. And, um, you know, Appalachian culture is like everywhere else in the, in the United States in a time of great social change and a time when um, norms are shifting, things are moving real fast. We're seeing it in terms of labor. We're seeing it in terms of gender. We're seeing it in terms of reproductive access. We're seeing it in terms of mobility. We're seeing it in terms of how we, our relationship with the land, our relationship with the identity, um, our, our relationship with each other and with religion and with politics and all the other stuff that we argue about, even the food. So all of those things are like the dials up to 10 when you, <laughs> when you have a big high stakes family event too. And so I felt like, I guess that's why I would have called it the most like, um, typically Appalachian um, setup, but I didn't want it to have, you know, a predictable ending. I didn't want it, the characters to be sort of like tropes or stereotypes. And so the richness of our lives and the complexity of lives that are, that are lived in Appalachia, which is, again, as it says in the intro, right? Like 13 states, 25 million people. Um, it's not all the same, right? It's not all the same everywhere. And that's why I encourage people to read well beyond my book and to look at um, lots of other authors who have had lots of other experiences as Appalachians, as writers, as Americans, and, um, and to, to reach beyond that. In our final moments with you today, Jamie, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, writing or about storytelling or about your career, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you? And then secondly, where can they get copies of Township? Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have a website, Jamie Lynn writes. Um, there's a contact form on there. And um, if you want to get the book, you can get it anywhere books are sold. So please order it from a local independent bookstore. You can even order it directly from Cornerstone Press, the wonderful small press that, um, that published it. So um, any of those places, you can get your hands on it. And Bookshop is another favorite of mine. Um, I encourage you to do that. And to also check out lists from Electric, electric Literature. Crystal Wilkinson has a terrific list of... Um, uh, Black Appalachian writers, and Kendra Winchester has a great list of things to read um, that are not uh, that are not hillbilly elegy. All right, I just said it. So they kind of take you outside that experience. And um, if you really want to hear somebody give that book a shellacking, check out Elizabeth Katz's book, which was published right here in Ohio called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. So again, when you're reading, read beyond and and um, as we expand our, our telling and our stories of, about Appalachia and our experiences here, um, the world grows and we, and we grow with it. And that's one of the exciting things about writing from where I am right now. The title of the book is Township. It's a collection of short stories. Our guest today has been author Jamie Lynn Smith. She's a writer, editor, and teacher. She's a recipient of the 2020 Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award. And Jamie, this is a terrific collection of short stories that 
is set in Appalachian, Ohio, and it explores really a, a region and a wonderful rotating cast of characters who call it home. It's a great collection of stories and congratulations on it. Uh, and as you keep writing and keep putting out uh, new work, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So all the best to you in the books. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you so much. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this edition of Now Appalachia to say thanks to the executive producer of our program and also the executive producer of all the podcasts that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. These podcasts would not be made possible without all the work that she does behind the scenes. So Pam, thanks so much for all of your work and support. We want to remind you also that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That will do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.